What's going on? Welcome to Next Fix Podcast. We are back again for another episode. Episode five this week is going to be about therapy and why it works. Um, you know, I've never been shy about talking about why therapy is important to me um, and what therapy has done for me. Um, therapy may not be for everybody, but I do like to um, give informed and uh, detailed about therapy. And I am very fortunate to have um, someone that um, is in therapy, has a lot of specialty um, areas, is also LGBTQI plus focused. Um, and that is Dale. Welcome, Dale, to Next Fix. Um, so today we're going to just kind of talk about um, different um the different areas that Dale covers, um, what Dale's approach and frameworks are. Um, we're going to talk about harm reduction, uh, what that looks like. We're also going to get into Dale specializes in like kink fetish and leather therapy as well. Um, so we're going to get into some of that and then, yeah, just talk about therapy and the community and how folks can benefit off of it. Dale, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Good. So why don't you uh, share a little bit of your background, um, professional, personal, whatever you're open with, and then, um, yeah, we'll just kind of take it from there. Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, first, thank you so much for inviting me into this podcast. Um, since 2007, I probably have listened to tens of thousands of hours of podcasts, and this is the first podcast I've ever been on, so this is very special. So. Oh, well, <laughs> that, that's a first. I appreciate that. Thank you. I tell you, I saw your um uh, well, obviously, we worked at an organization, um, not in the same department, but at, uh, around the same time. Um, and then I believe that I was working at uh, the first time that we actually made contact. I was working for the Salvation Army's Adult Rehabilitation Center, where I, that's actually where I got sober at. And we have a mutual friend, uh, Romel. Yes. Uh huh. And I was, I forget exactly what it was that I was needing, but I had reached out to Romel because at that point he was like really the only person that I knew inside like the therapy and substance um, use world as far as like on the recovery and side. And he's like, oh, well, you got to reach out to Dale. I know Dale. And uh, I ended up reaching out with you, uh, out to you. But then we were, when we worked at um, the organization, together i was like okay and then when i was formatting and putting this all together i wanted to have a, a few people with professional um experience in whatever the topics were um and obviously i'm really big on therapy so yeah and then i saw your um bio for your new practice that you're doing um and was like yeah absolutely i need to have dale on so welcome i appreciate it thank you again Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, um, just some background, um, professional, personal, whatever you're down with um, sharing um, works for me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so my pronouns are he and they. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I work as part of a group private practice. Um, I also am a certified alcohol and drug counselor. Um, I also am certified in dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, I currently do um, individual therapy, couples therapy. That's very interesting. Um, group therapy as well. And I also provide supervision um, to pre-licensed clinicians. Um, also on the side, I've done years of teaching um, in a substance use uh, class in which I was originally certified in. So I also have a lot of teaching experience as well. So I've been in the field 
of social service since uh, June 2013. And I kind of want to give a little background what led to that. Okay. So I'm also a person um, in long-term recovery. Um, Last November, I celebrated 12 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, My primary drug of choice uh, was crystal meth um, and so many other, you know, different party drugs, you know, uh, K, you know, GHB, you know, um, X, and then, you know, alcohol and all that kind of stuff, you know. So um, I had been using uh, crystal meth for the better part of 10 years. So pretty much starting in 2001. And I'm certainly not going to go through the, through, through the whole mess. <laughs> for a, sure. lot of, a lot of us know what that journey can look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I every sort of bottom I, I you could hit, I had hit that, right? Um, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it had all culminated in me reaching my emotional, physical, and spiritual bottom in November of 2011. And when I reached that point, the lowest point of my life at that time, I was beginning to understand why people considered committing suicide. And I never had that thought before. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was a point in my life where I was beginning to understand why, and that really scared me. Um, And that's when I reached out to some people I knew in Chicago that were involved with social service um, systems. And I was able to get into some supportive housing programs, not so much with the intention of sobriety, but I knew that what I was doing was not working and I needed something to change. That is so, I think, not to, you know, stop you, but it's so funny that you said that because when I finally went to um, the ARC, it was under a pretense of just needing somewhere to stay. And, you know, I entered that program like, okay, in my, in my my addict mind, I said, okay, I can go here. You know, they're not charging me. I can sign myself out whenever I'm going to go for, you know, a couple months, get my thoughts together. And eight months later, I was graduating the program. And now nine years and some change here I am sober. So it's funny that you say that because that's exactly what it was like for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started that journey back in late 2011, you know, I, I had fully sort of resolved that, I needed something different, mm. you know, so I did what was necessary at that time. You know, they told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I did that. I found a sponsor. I worked with that sponsor. The sponsor started taking me through those steps. I was on step four by the time I got to like five months mm-hmm. of sobriety. So it was, it was relatively quick. I was on steps eight and nine um, by my ninth month, you know, and um, I was doing lots of service work and really sort of getting into sort of the flow of recovery. At this time, I was still working in food service. So I was doing bartending, working um, house parties um, through different catering staffing agencies. And I was at a point where I was at these house parties um, working and the hosts were doing lines of cocaine in the back, right? Mm -hmm. While they're sharing it with their guests Mm -hmm. and offering it to us. And this was me in my first year and a half of recovery, realizing, oh, I can't sustain this. This is very dangerous for me. So, um, but, and also the insustainability of catering for me at that time, you know, it wasn't consistent. Just, just the nature of food service, if you're not with like a restaurant or with a consistent agency, mm-hmm. which I wasn't with. So I knew that I needed to make a change. And since I was in the mindset of recovery and really... Um, responding well to recovery, I figured, why don't I try to work in social service? 
And I knew because I didn't have experience, I would be starting a new career fresh and it would be, you know, an entry level position. Um, I started working um, at this treatment center that was uh, in downtown, well, in the west, west of the West Loop, um, at an entry level position in men's detox, mind you, eight twenty five an hour. Mm-hmm. This is in 2013, 8.25 an hour. And working in the detox, yeah. which for those that don't know, that's like the when you do certain things or like you have, you know, substance use disorder around certain things, you are mandated to go to detox. Mm-hmm. And it's a little, it can get a little tricky during those first, you know, 72 hours of what can. So yeah, 8.25 on top of, on top of all the, oof. Yeah. But I was also living um, in a recovery home and it was a situation where whatever I was making, 30% of what I made, that's what I, that's what I had to pay. So it can be as much or as little as it needed, as long as it's 30% of my income. Mm -hmm. So I took that as an opportunity for me to start fresh since I didn't have to pay it too Mm -hmm. much, right, you know, for my housing. Um, And that's how I started my, started building up my career. Um, I, I worked in that department, the detox department for, um, about two years, um, while at the same time, um, taking this addiction counselor training program in order to become a certified alcohol and drug counselor. So I took that six month course. Um, I had to switch to working third shift, which working third shift, bless those people who work third shift any third shift doesn't matter what industry exactly exactly (laughs) um that's that was one of the toughest periods of my life at that time because i had difficulty sleeping during the day you know and that really um put a damper on my social life right Mm -hmm. but i knew if i just stuck it out and did the best i could during the six month period taking that taking that course then i was able to move back to like first or second shift so i took that class i took the test i passed the test and then I became a new to the field counselor. So while still working at this agency, I was a, a counselor in a residential program, um, an IOP program. And then I realized I hit a ceiling of how much I was going to make with an unrelated um, bachelor's degree and a CADC, which mm-hmm. is a Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor Certification. So that's when I decided in 2016 that I was going to go for my master's in social work. So I went to the University of Chicago um, to get my master's in social work. I went full time and then I graduated in 2018. Um, And when I graduated, I went back to that um, substance use treatment facility. But then I went into management. Mm. I went into management because I figured that was the next step in in, of of my own personal and professional growth of the business. For sure. And I ended up being the manager of the outpatient program at this facility, which is a very large program. You know, I had um, about like 16 to 18 staff, direct staff that reported to me. 14 to 15 of those were um, substance use counselors. Um, And each of them averaged eight to 12 clients each, right? So it was a huge department, right? And um, I will say that that while it was the most demanding job I've ever had, it, it did a lot my own professional professional and personal growth um but after two and a half years of working with that i really missed clinical okay and i worked i worked at that i worked from uh, in that department from late 2018 
right into the start of the pandemic, which, as we know, everything changed. Oh. Everything changed. And by the end, near the end of 2020, October 2020, for exact, to be exact, that's when I decided I need to go back to clinical, right? I, I became um, independently licensed. So I took my, my LCSW, my mm-hmm. licensed clinical social work um, uh, test, and I became independently licensed. And then I started going um, to work at this agency that you and I used to work at together. Mm-hmm. right? And that's, again, where I really took off as a clinician and as a professional. So part of my um, modalities as a, as a therapist... Um, I specialize in dialectical behavioral therapy, otherwise known as DBT, which is a skills-based modality that helps that uses four different modules. There is mindfulness, there is um, emotion regulation skills, and that helps you identify the um, what are the primary function of emotions. You know our core emotions. You know anger, sadness, fear, um, jealousy, envy. Shame, guilt, those are all part of our core emotions. And I help clients sort of demystify what we, the messages we're told about emotions, that emotions are good, bad, right, wrong. They are none of those. What they are is that they are there to give you information. What is the message that these emotions are telling us? And we have to look at what is causing those emotions. So while some emotions are not as comfortable as others, they are delivery systems for information. And that's what I help clients realize, is that when they try to stuff down emotions, you're actually making it more intense. So if you understand what is causing the emotions, that can help you plan the next steps in how to regulate those emotions and to problem solve. So that's the second module. I also... um, Distress tolerance skills is also part of DBT. So when you have those unwanted emotions and they're so intense that you don't know how to calm yourself or ground yourself, there are specific skills that are given to you, tangible skills on how to regulate your breathing, how to regulate your emotions and be able to ground yourself and decelerate. And the fourth module is interpersonal effectiveness skills. So that's um, more communication skills, um, ways of building your own self-respect, right? Um, ways of being present for others while maintaining boundaries and different ways of, of, of being more assertive, mm-hmm. you know, in communication and less passiveness, less aggression and less, and this is most important, passive aggressiveness, which can be very damaging. So all those four modules are part of DBT. I, I utilize that with clients individually, and I also have a group therapy that I do, a 16-week group therapy that I have sort of created out of of some texts, and I use that, and I do that virtually as well. So in addition to DBT, I also do a trauma exposure therapy, which is called EMDR, otherwise otherwise known as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, and it's an exposure therapy that uses um, a bilateral stimulation um, to help uh, bring up to help bring up and reprocess distressing memories, negative self beliefs, traumatic memories, and and help install more positive self beliefs and take the power out of those out of those um, uh, negative experiences and negative self talk, so that way they can live a life that is meaningful to them 
whatever that looks like, right? Mm-hmm. To where they are not under the grip of these negative self-beliefs. And EMDR is something that is incredibly powerful. Um, and um, But it is an exposure therapy, so it can be very intense. So we prepare, the way I was trained, we prepare... Um, I prepare my clients with a number of foundational and grounding techniques um, so that way I can prepare them for the intensity and um, the focus that EMDR pretty much demands. And I've had some really great results with that. You know, it's interesting that you, um, as I was reading your bio to kind of like – figure out how to like lead on to like, cause I did like a pilot video and like, I've literally each episode I've talked about how I was going to have you on. And I steered away from like listing off these things because it's like, I had never heard of, um, the two that you just described that wasn't, you know, and it's not something that I personally in my therapy journey have Uh, participated in so then obviously you know I have to I like would like Google and research and like I did all of that but to hear it and like you break down the modules and like everything gives me such a a better understanding and now I'm even more interested in it Um, but yeah so that's uh, that's interesting do you have other areas like that you because you said you did couples I can only imagine how interesting and messy that could potentially get. And as a, as as a therapist or what I see, I'm obviously I'm not a therapist as I've said many times. Um, but you're like that non-biased, you know, in the, you know, like you're just, how is that? Like, what's that look like? Yeah. So (laughs) couples therapy is something that I started, um, for the first time this past year at this group private practice I'm at. Um, I did a training, um, it's called a Gottman method. Okay. Um, it, there's a level one. There's also a level two. You know, I did level one and that sort of gave me my foundation I needed and some tools that I needed in order to how to approach couples. So when I work with couples, um, they're not individuals to me. The, um, the relationship is the client. Okay. So, so, so my focus, so my philosophy with working with couples is that I'm there to help them repair what needs to be repaired um, in the relationship. Um, I'm also at the point now when I work with couples, I'm hesitant to work with couples who don't also each have their own individual therapy. That's what I was going to ask. So do you, I was going to ask, do you encourage them to do individual counseling or individual therapy as well? Well, at first I didn't realize that's what I needed to have <laughs> <laughs> because I've worked, I have worked with some couples uh, that didn't have their own individual therapist. Okay. So everything from their own individual lives is being brought into the couple space and could be taking the focus away from the relationship. And that's something that I had to learn through trial and error. And that's something that I had to keep in mind moving forward. And I do. And I ended up encouraging those clients to also seeking their own individual therapist because a lot of their um, past you know, traumas, a lot of their past negative beliefs mm-hmm. were impacting how they're showing up in the relationship. And um, the, also the thing about working with couples is being clinically neutral um, because it would be unhealthy for me to pick sides in a relationship. So I have to be very um, neutral in that sense. And that can be challenging. Um, I was just going to ask that. What's that look like? Like, how does that 
obviously I'm single, so I've never been to couples therapy, but, and I've been to therapy, so I know what that looks like when, you know, it's just one-on-one therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did, what's that? That's gotta, that's gotta be interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, um, people, the, the number one thing in couples therapy and that reason why they come into is often for communication issues right? Um, it could be trust. It could be, um, not knowing how to resolve conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. Some couples may come in where they think one person has the problem, but I'm just fine. Okay. So, but then I have to remain balanced and validating both experiences. Right. Um, and it's important that each has a voice and while one problem may be more significant in one in one client than the other, I still have to remain that balance so so I don't um, so they don't triangulate right. Okay. By triangulation is that it feels like um, I am siding more with one client against the other, and that's not that's not the atmosphere that I want. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to be um, a healthy um, working relationship. Right. Um, sometimes some sessions work better than others because of what they bring into it and what comes up. And I have to be sort of present and aware for that. But also what I, a big thing that I tell my couples is that I only see them once for one hour a week. If I'm seeing them weekly, one hour out of 168 hours in a week, granted a lot of that is sleeping, of course. So, um, but that's to say that while our, our hour together is valuable, there is still work to be done outside of the session. And I've had some couples not take that to heart too much and that they wait to bring things into session and then it becomes a big thing in session. Mm-hmm. Then I give them these tangible skills to do outside of session. And if they're not doing them outside of session, that's going to make the work that we're doing in session that much more challenging. Uh, but I'll tell you, um, my anxiety goes through the roof more working with couples, okay. than individual clients, because because I'm dealing with a bigger dynamic there. For sure. And um, even and more so, I have to make sure I have to make sure what my facial expression is because I can have very expressive eyes. So <laughs> yeah, I say all the time, if my mouth doesn't say it, my face is going to. So I this I completely understand what that could. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. But the really great thing about working with couples is that it helps me be a better partner in my own personal relationships. I could see that. Because I, because not only do I learn the language of being a couples therapist, I see sometimes elements of my relationships in theirs. And I'm like, oh, I recognize that. Yeah. Maybe I'll keep that in mind next time. the next time I'm in a conflict with a loved one and maybe do something different or, Oh, I didn't realize that something that I said could look like that. Right. And I, For often, sure. I often see myself in, in, in clients mm-hmm. and that helps me be more aware of how I show up in my relationships. Um, and, and that's been actually really powerful too. And that kind of snuck up on me. I didn't realize how much I was going to get out of that, not only professionally, but on a personal level too. And, it's exciting in a way. It can be stressful, but it's also very exciting too. And um, that's part of what I why I love what I do, right? Um, it uh, it is a lot of work. It is, but there's something incredibly grateful about 
the privilege of getting access to the most intimate part of a person's life. Okay. And being trusted to be a container in session, right? And that's a privilege. I, I see that as a privilege and I don't take that lightly and I don't abuse it, mm-hmm. right? Um, it also helps that we have codes of ethics in place. And, uh, absolutely. And, and we always, and we're always like doing trainings to make sure that we are maintaining boundaries, understanding when boundaries need to be set and, and, and making sure that we're protecting ourselves, you know, our coworkers, our agency, our licenses, because I've worked very hard to get where I am today. And I want to protect that. For sure. Right. And not only do I want to protect that, I want to protect the clients too. Yeah, absolutely. I think anybody that um, is in a, anybody that is licensed to do whatever it is, you should want to protect um, because that's your livelihood. And if you truly enjoy what you do, then that's also your happiness in a way, you yes. know, and on, on different types of level. Right. So I've always been curious um, to know what does a therapist do for therapy? Do you like go to therapy? Like, cause I mean, you, we come into your office and like you just said, you're the, you're our container. We unload, um, you know, all of our emotions, all of, everything and then we're like okay see you next week or you know whatever the case may be yeah so does does a therapist go to therapy or like how what's the pro like how how especially long term because you know you've done this for a while now and i know that you're going to do it for a very long time so yeah what's the longevity of that i mean it's always best practice you know for a therapist to also be in therapy uh, I'm not going to say that every therapist should be in therapy. Sure. But at the very least, if you're not in therapy, have a good supervisor or have a good relationship with your supervisor. So that way you can unpack and, and talk about these cases um, and get things off your chest, right? Um, because, because as I said, we are a container. We hold a lot with clients in session. But we also have to know how to let that go outside of session as well, because it could very it's very easy to to be that container and stay a container outside of session. And that can lead to compassion fatigue, that can lead to burnout, that can lead to resentment. So so if we have a good relationship either with our supervisor or a team to consult with, um, or a therapist, mm-hmm. our own personal therapist, because we're human too. For sure. You know, we have, we, we bring out a lot of ourselves into the space as well. Um, or I should say, we present ourselves, we, should, we don't want to bring a lot of our stuff into session because then that could take it away from the client. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but we are human beings, right? We're not perfect. And uh, we do, it is vital for us to have ways of processing our feelings and what comes up in therapy uh, with our clients, uh, but also within our own lives, right? So for sure. All right. So um, there's so much more to get to, and we are going to take a short break, and then we will be back um, to kind of dive more into. There's a couple more of your specialties. Well, actually, I want to talk about all of your specialties um, because I am very interested, and I was so excited just to know that this is here, and I think that. Um, next fix viewers and listeners um, could benefit from it and then kind of we'll get into some harm reduction and then um, 
Yeah, I'm I'm just super excited about this. This actually makes me really happy. So um, we'll be back in a short minute. And then we're also going to, as I said, uh, pre-recording that I do a five minute like little shout out or whatever, um, obviously, because you're a business that works with inside of an, um, a firm. I think it's only fair that, you know, you be that shout out this week. So when we come back, we'll do that as well. We'll be right back with y'all. All right. And we are back and we are at the portion where... Um, I do a shout out each episode and normally I have a small business um, with inside our community um, that I like to call out just to give free uh, a moment of free advertising so people support small businesses um, and that's just kind of my way of giving back to the community um, and I decided not to pick a business today because obviously this is what you do so um, today's shout out portion of it will be for Dale and um, his work and how folks can get a hold of you if they are interested in therapy or, you know, your, uh, your firm. Um, you explained to me that your firm, um, the, is it the president or CEO? Well, here, I'll just let you explain it and however that works. Um, but yeah, Dale is our shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks again. Uh, yeah. So I work, um, in a group private practice, um, and it is called, uh, inclusive insight, psychotherapy and consulting. Um, so if you want to find that, you can either Google that name or you can go to inclusive insight, net um, for our, for our website. Um, and there you'll be able to, you know, find my profile along with the, um, dozens of other, um, clinicians, um, that, that we work with, um, all wonderful people of, of different, um, uh, you know, gender, sexual, and racial identities. Um, so you'll definitely find like a, a, a very inclusive um, uh, staff there. Yeah, I actually saw that. And each one that I know, everybody has a profile and it kind of like lists off um, their approaches, their specialties, um, exactly what they do. And it is a very wide range because, um, you know, it's important to, and I think you kind of highlighted on it in your profile of, you know, um, what you offer, your approaches, um, your beliefs on what would be, um, how you can be beneficial to the client. Um, and that's most important in therapy, right? It's the, it's the client who needs, is, needs to be the most beneficial in that setting. Um, and there is a wide range on, um, y'all's webpage. And so, yeah, just click on those, um, and find the person or the clinician that you feel is best for you. Um, reach out again. I am, as though I am a big supporter of therapy, I also understand that not, you know, therapy doesn't work for everybody. And what works for me may not work for you, but at least you know that the option is there. Um, definitely check it out. And you guys accept, you guys do private insurance. And then is there self pay um, type setup as well? Yes, yes. Uh, there are a number of um, uh, private insurances that we do accept. Um, we also accept Medicare. Um, unfortunately, we don't accept Medicaid, um, but we do have um, sliding scale options um, available. You know, if if that's what a person. We also we also do occasionally have interns um, that are also under the supervision of fully licensed staff. Mm -hmm. So um, so particularly for those you know who may not have insurance or are open to sliding scale fees, you have that option there as well. See, I think that's very important because I think sometimes people believe that, oh, I can't go to therapy because it's so expensive or I don't have, you know, this type of insurance, but I have this type or a sliding scale, uh, you know, and don't understand that, you know, some 
places. Um, and I think that's what kind of uh, makes your firm so attractive is, is that there is that sliding scale option because if therapy is something you really want to try, it can get costly. You know, it can get it can get costly if you're paying without insurance. So to know that there's a sliding scale, that's awesome. So go check that out um, and, you know, go through the laundry list of clinicians that they have um, and find a therapist that works best for you. Read all the profiles, <laughs> see yes. who works. Um, but if you find Dale's, uh, definitely check out Dale and reach out as well. And so we were talking, um, you listed off a few of your things. A couple of things that uh, stuck out or that stood out for me um, was, uh, and I've talked about this a few times in a couple of the previous episodes, um, is you do therapy around kinks, fetishes, and like leather. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that, you know, if our community, specifically the LGBTQIA plus community, um, had a little more open-mindedness um, towards people's individual um, kinks, fetishes, and wants, mm-hmm. that it would be not only a safer community, but a more welcoming community. Because I feel like sometimes, and this is just, again, my own opinion, it's, this is not anything that's factual or anything. It's just what I perceive and what I've seen. I feel that, you know, um, sure, you may be into feet, right? You may be into um, anonymous sex. You may be into cruising. You may be into um, being what is known as like a cum dump or somebody of, of that nature. And... People that aren't into that, and we all know our community can, you know, we want, we don't want to be judged. You know, we don't want people that aren't part of our community to judge us, mm-hmm. but maybe we will judge the hell out of our, you know, like our own community members mm-hmm. and specifically around this kind of stuff. So when I saw that was another point that said, yeah, I got to have Dale because I think that you can give insight into that. Um, not only from um, a ther- like a therapist perspective, but just overall as a community member as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, so first, I'm a person who also, you know, has experience, personal experience in in, in the leather community, the kink community. Um, I um, I am a polyamorous person. You know, I currently um, have a partner that lives in Los Angeles. Um, I am a daddy to a boy that lives here in Chicago. You know, and I'm building a relationship with. Um, a daddy that lives in New York, right? And um, so I'm very much open to, you know, uh, consensual non-monogamy, right? You know, I've also engaged in like rope play, you know, you know, you know, being a rope top or, or rope bottom, you know, and you know, I've done I've done a number of things, right? And I find that as a therapist, um, having that um, that kink consciousness, that kink awareness, kink informed. Um, really helps people unpack maybe the reasons why they want to explore kink, uh, be- explore these fetishes. Um, because people want to explore kink and fetish in different ways. Some because they just want, they just love it, right? Mm-hmm. Some they do it for an escape. Some they do it to help process maybe some of their negative experiences that they hold in childhood, and they want a healthy way of expressing those, mm-hmm. right? And my my hope with um, talking about kink 
is, is it consensual, right? Is there communication, right? If you're, if you're in a scene with a person or, or doing something kinky with another person or multiple people, is there consent? Is there communication? Um, is there a safe word, right? Um, and are we doing it for reasons that are healthy and not harmful? And that's what I hope to create in the therapy space to process with clients who want to bring that into the therapy space. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, exploration of sexuality um, and kink and fetish can be very healthy, but it also can cause a lot of harm if it's wielded ir irresponsibly. And we've seen that we've seen that, that happen a lot too. Right? Oh, for sure. I think that you know because there's such a wide range, you know, of what kink and fetishes look like, you know, and I, I personally just believe that, you know, like if we just all just let everybody, you know, be again, I think that it is uh, about consent, you know, it being consensual with all the parties that are, you know, participating. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that somebody isn't doing something unconsensual and because, and I think that's a good, uh, differentiate to make right mm -hmm. that kink and fetish is not doing something that's non-consensual mm -hmm. because that's not okay and we can't we can't say that the ones that do it without consent are kink and fetish you know like that's not like you know like it has to and i think that's a big thing but you know it's the same thing that goes with you know there are people all right we'll take myself Use I statements. That's what they teach us, right? I prefer to only date black or Latino men. I've, that's all I've ever dated. That's who I'm attracted to. And, it, and I've, over the years, you know, um, made sure because in so many ways, that in itself mm -hmm. can be harmful to folks because some people are fetishize mm -hmm. the person that they're going after. You know, um, and I think it's it's a good idea to uh, for me, you know, as always. And I even had to like after experiencing or witnessing a not OK, quote unquote, preference, we'll say um, and go, wait, is that why? And then I really had to break down, like, why am I attracted to those to that? certain classification of people yes. and it went way beyond what a normal like somebody on the outside or somebody that is oh you're after the bbc or you know mm -hmm. um they're for some people the race play mm -hmm. type mm -hmm. uh, scenarios and things like that and it it's not like i appreciate black culture i appreciate latino culture as a latino you know mm -hmm. um and i'm just not attracted to non-black or brown people mm -hmm. um but unfortunately and it's not just in the gay community it's in every community unfortunately mm -hmm. there are people that do things that we do mm -hmm. in a consensual and healthy way mm -hmm. in a non-consensual and non-healthy way right so yeah um and i so yeah i, I think that it, that our community could benefit from having a more knowledge of what kink and fetish actually looks like mm -hmm. in a consensual, healthy way mm -hmm. and understanding that, you know, the same way that I don't eat tomatoes, you may eat tomatoes. That doesn't make us any less or any more than of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, that's, it's, 
the same concept, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there are so many um, different portions or parts of our community, right? There's people, like you said, that are the kink uh, um, or that are the part of the leather community or that do um, daddy and, and boy type situation or, now I don't know about that. What, how does the pup was what's that play into or so, how's that explained so uh so so uh, so i'm not the person like to, to go through all of the, the different sure. uh, groups and communities there's so many of them because it's really expanded you know, oh it has like, you know you know and it's in you know it's even hard for me to sort of keep up but there's so many different ways of expressing a fetish and kink nowadays and um so we're moving away from the sort of the old guard of like just leather or whatnot okay um and i think that's wonderful that's wonderful. Um, but it's also important to recognize that we live in a very sex-negative society. Um, it's, and also, it's still extremely conservative, even if we, say, live in Chicago, which is kind of a, um, a liberal bubble, right? Mm -hmm. or, or somewhere like, like California, which is very blue, right? But overall, we still live in a very conservative, sex-negative society, and that also translates to black and brown communities as well. Uh, particularly if there has been like a, a historical emphasis on religion, like particularly in the black community, right? And we also can't ignore how our race and our racial histories plays into some of our kink and fetish practices and what that looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly when there are dominant and submissive roles, right? Um, there are people um, who... Um, you know, there are healthy ways for a, a white person and a black person to engage in consensual race play. I've seen that happen before, and I've heard people have experiences with that. There are also very unhealthy ways, right, to, um, to engage in any kind of race play, right, especially if it is not fully consensual, right? Um, but at the same time, Just lost my train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was definitely on a roll there, um, but uh, but yeah, we, we can't. We also can't deny just how traditional, quote unquote, and conservative values often get in, often cloud the message. For sure, um, you know, when it comes to sexuality, fetish, kink, and relationships that deviate from the heteronormative, um, monogamous. Um, chokehold that is on our society today. Yeah, and I think that it's that is you actually brought up a good point and something that just kind of like one of those uh, light where the light bulb comes on for me moment is that we need it is a, a we need a more sex positive mm -hmm. um, and that is exactly um, what I was getting at is is that you know it if you don't if you're not into it mm -hmm. cool that doesn't make it wrong for the people that are into it right mm -hmm. um and it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be one set or look one way or feel one way um and that it, if we just had more acceptance you know the same thing that we're asking for those that are not part of our community mm -hmm. you know to do mm -hmm. i think we need to do within our community and understand that if you're not into that mm -hmm. cool and it's okay to be very vanilla about the situation mm -hmm. if that's what you're into mm -hmm. it doesn't make anybody less of a, a person because they like to go out and cruise mm -hmm. and may have five or six encounters mm -hmm. in a cruising 
mm-hmm. night or afternoon or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's what they're into. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of leads us into harm re- uh, where we were going with harm reduction is, is that mm-hmm. um, so to lead into harm reduction it would be um, I'm a big person on harm reduction and harm reduction. Um, I know a lot of you have heard me talk about harm reduction when it comes to like substances and those types of things, but harm reduction is actually something that is across the board Mm -hmm. in a lot of different um, scenarios and situations. Mm -hmm. So we'll just kind of right now to stick with the cruising. So like, okay, you're, you like to cruise. There is doxy prep Mm -hmm. that is now out, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, there is also, you know, using protection. If that is something that you want to do to protect yourself Mm -hmm. um there is also being on prep Mm -hmm. there's also people that are hiv positive that um you know maintain care and medication that are undetectable as you and i as two educated people in that Mm -hmm. um world know that as long as you're on medication and you're undetectable it's untransmittable so that you can carry on and i think that's another stigma and um area of our community that's like, oh, no, I just can't, you know, Mm -hmm. that person's positive. Mm -hmm. Well, it's about having, we have to be able to have a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, and and know how to have that conversation with somebody that you're interested in, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're interested in Mm -hmm. um, as far as what that looks like. Um, But yeah, uh, what's your take on harm reduction? What's that look like um, in all aspects or however you, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, harm reduction is definitely the main philosophy um, that I approach, especially not only with substance use, but with just life in general. We use harm reduction in so many different ways. Wearing a seatbelt in a car is harm reduction. That's a good point. Right? That's a very good point that I know. And simple. Very simple. So so we use it in so many different ways. Um, So when it comes to substance use... um, Abstinence is not for everybody. And, mm-hmm. and, and substance use is actually very common, super common in our society. I was talking to, I always tell this to other clients, alcohol is the only substance in our society that you have to defend yourself for not using. That's how much alcohol has been integrated into our society and how normalized it is. People actually look at you cross-eyed sometimes when you tell them that you don't drink. They ask, what's wrong? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we're actually fighting an uphill battle, especially if alcohol is your drug of choice, and you and you have issues with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, but being but having more being more mindful of our practices, um, examining if, if if there are less severe options or ways in which we can achieve the same effect in order to protect ourselves and those around us. Right. Um, harm reduction is not is not an easy way out, right? It actually takes a lot more creativity, right? It takes a lot more skills and a lot more resources to be able to navigate harm reduction because abstinence for substances is not for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's okay. Um, but what it comes down to is is that are we aware of what happens when we use those substances and what are and if there are any consequences of it. And if, are those consequences significant enough for us to consider other options? And that's what harm reduction can be for. And harm reduction can also include this concept called gradualism, where you may, over time, reduce the frequency and the amounts of what you're using. Um, there could be that. Abstinence is also part of, of harm reduction. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. 
it can be yes and right mm-hmm. um, so so that's that's really like my my feelings on harm reduction is that it actually creates more options mm-hmm. as opposed to say abstinence only yeah so um wow and see i love harm reduction and you know my work at brave space alliance is around harm reduction and but it's more substance focused and you know really pushing the narrative of using fentanyl um testing strips because of the spike in the the way that this growth of the fentanyl crisis has really taken over in the last um, couple years and that now that you can find it in pretty much anything. And I always say my goal is not to make you to tell you that you shouldn't use or that you have a problem because there are so many people like we were saying um, why we're before we started recording is that one, you know, a person may drink a glass of wine every night with dinner and it just be that glass of wine and there's no type of consequences that come with that, they still maintain their lifestyle, their responsibilities, their job, all of those things. But that doesn't, because they do it every night with dinner doesn't mean that it's an, it's an issue. Right. right? Um, and so, and when approaching this and so many people find it, you know, the little, they think that I'm going to come from another angle because I'm sober. I've said, since I've gotten sober, I've worked in the bar industry since I've been sober, that just because I'm sober doesn't mean that you have to be sober. And you're right. I have, I never realized how much criticism people give when they find out that you don't drink. Uh And it's like, oh, you don't drink? Yeah. No, come on. It's like, no, I just, I don't drink. And I don't even have to go into the fact that I'm sober. It's like, no, I just don't I just don't drink. Yes. And and my stepfather, uh, who's in his 60s, has never drank a drop of alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, never done a drug. So, And I always use him as an example, like, that man's 60 years old and has never once done any of those things. So it's, you know, it's not uncommon that people don't do these things. Yeah. But it's also not uncommon for people to be able to do those things and that just be their business, you know? Yeah. But my goal with harm reduction, as far as my, in my space at Brave Space, is that I just want you to do whatever you're going to do and do it safely, yeah. right? I don't want you to do something and, it, there, and then there be an accident because you did something that you normally do. Mm-hmm. So to be able to, to mitigate those accidents, come get a, a, a testing kit, you know, when you're out, come back and get another one. Also keep Narcan on hand because you may not be doing something, mm-hmm. but your friend is, mm-hmm. and then they fall out. And then now, because you have that Narcan in your bag, you just, you, you were the difference between life or death. Yes. And it's so important. Um, and we've seen so many incidents, especially in this last year or so. Um, I know just recently there was like some type of cruise that folks were on and a person had um, purchased a, what they purchased, did it, and then it ended in a, in a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. And that person didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, so it's not just the people that are quote unquote what society calls as addicts, right? Yeah. This can be an accidental thing with yeah. people that are recreationally using yes. these things. And I'm sure that all the people that are pushing the fentanyl, if they could find a way to get it in alcohol, they probably would because they know everybody consumes it, right? Yeah. Um, so let's just, that's the, that's the mold. And I'm so glad for your insight around um, the way that you describe harm reduction. That seatbelt analogy, mm-hmm. oh, I'm stealing it, by the way. So if you see a video in the future, <laughs> I'm going to give you your props of the, where I got it from. But that's probably the best, simplest 
analogy mm-hmm. of what harm reduction looks like. Mm-hmm. We do. We put a seatbelt on for harm reduction. Yep. And wow, that is such a, a great thing. Um, you know, one last thing uh, that I quickly want to touch on um, is that on your on your prof on your uh, bio, a bio for um, your work page, you um, listed um, that uh, like how you do therapy for folks dealing with like identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, did you say dysphoria? I don't want to say that if that's not what it said. Oh, How about you explain that? Like the different things, it was like identity, race, gender, um, even life phase. That was something that I really, I really liked how that, how that looks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, so I, I wrote that about a year ago, so I'm just trying to remember it cause I haven't updated it, but, uh, but yeah, but yeah, I, I do, um, I, I do practice therapy with those who are, you know, navigating, you know, gender gender issues, identity issues, racial issues, you know, different phase of life issues, um, and 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 just and just different transitions as well. So, um, yeah, you can certainly look at that page. I, I forget like all the time. I, and it said that that's exactly what it said. And I think uh, life phase uh, to me, how I took it, and correct me if I'm wrong, was like the midlife crisis, like a person being like, and that being one way of a. a a life, uh, which I actually just went through. And it's so funny that because, you know, after nine years of being sober and being in the bar business, I just really had got depressed last year mm-hmm. about after market days and on until I really decided to take this leap into this type of work and doing the podcast and switching careers and doing all those things. Because I was like, why was I saved from, you know, my addiction at, when there are multiple times that I probably shouldn't have, you know, like I shouldn't have made it out. Mm-hmm. And it was that kind of like that life phase crisis that I was in uh, and moment where it was like, okay. And now that I've been on this side, the amount of feedback I get from people that have known me for a really long time or even all my life say how much happier I am in this moment and it all is to do with because now I'm actually, you know, like I loved my work at Progress. I did a lot of things that were impactful and I love what I did there. I'm not saying that, but where I'm at now and like what I'm doing now and the work that I'm doing now, I'm not only with this podcast, but at Brave Space and in the community is um, it's just taken me, you know, and I go to therapy all the time. So to see that and read that, it was like one of those personal things that struck with me. But unfortunately, uh, we would love for these episodes to be able to go on and on and on. But uh, we will definitely be bringing um, Dale back um, for a part two, um, probably more so to get into um, not necessarily about therapy, but I'm interested to hear more about um, kinks and fetishes. And just like because I believe that education behind it, the same way that we educate folks on um HIV, you know, and we've taken that really big leap on, you know, pushing to be on prep, to actively get tested all the time, to, you know, if you are positive, it's okay just getting care, maintain care, medication, those types of things. I think that we can get the normalization Mm -hmm. that we need with kinks fetish um, 
if we have more conversations, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that it can, that it's an okay thing, right? So thank you so much for coming. Um, I appreciate you so much. Your insight has helped me. This is definitely a therapy. Do not send me an invoice because it will not get paid. <laughs> uh, but you definitely, I definitely got a free session. So go check out Dale because he's a great therapist. Um, and yeah, I, I can't thank you enough. And it is so important, as I told you before, that I use this platform um, to give um, and I'm very intentional and I'm not shy to say it. I'm very intentional about my special guests um, and that they are black and brown folks, because I think and you said it best, you know, like when we talk about certain things, there are certain demographics specifically around therapy. Um, it's a white older woman that is telling a story. Right. Mm -hmm. And specific, even more specifically in our community mm -hmm. that because you've had 17 degrees and you've read and you've seen all these, you know, and you may have had a bunch of clients, right? So yes, you probably have some experience in hearing those stories, but to see somebody that is a member of our community and a member of other parts of our community um, also had experienced things um, and then be who you are as a person to share those things is important to me, you know? Um, because it goes to show that there are black and brown people um, that have overcome difficult times that have um, that do go to therapy, right? Um, that have overcome substance use disorder, um, that um, are successful, that are educated, that um, and I believe that empowers the younger generation to understand no matter what, you can achieve these things mm -hmm. and so much more mm -hmm. and here. Dale is our it's tonight's way of saying that and that's what next fix podcast is about and that's what my mission is um, because as I told you as a white presenting Latino I feel that it is my responsibility and my duty to break down systematic racism racism in general yes. white supremacy yep. um, and I always say this and my friends can attest to it that if I'm in a circle and it's me and you and three other black or brown people and somebody of that is non black or brown says racially charged, whether it be a microaggression or just an out blatant that's became so much more common nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, it is my job to let you all step back, say, no, 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 let me, and I'm calling them out and I'm handling any type of situation that arises from that because for too long, for so long, that's what you, you know, that's what black and brown folks have had to do. And I have privilege and my privilege I use to empower, uplift and affirm black and brown people in those types of situations. But that is unfortunately the end of this episode. Again, Dale, thank you so much. As always, you can um, follow us on Instagram and uh, Twitter, or now known as X. I'm always going to say Twitter. I don't care what anybody says. It is what it is. Um, at Next Fix Podcast, all one word. And then um, we are on several different podcast streaming platforms that is uploaded each week at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then you can also find the audio and visual, uh, our video portion of this on our YouTube channel at NextFix12. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week with, of course, another episode, another special guest. And until then, make sure that you take care of yourself. You do it in the safest way possible, how, whatever that looks like. And we will see you next week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thanks again, Dale. Thank you very much for having You're us. You're very welcome.